So I'm wondering this morning if you realize just how many signs we've been given in everyday life about the reality of death, burial, and resurrection. Now, when I say signs, I mean pointers. So things that are shadows, pictures, demonstrations of the real thing. They're not the real thing themselves, but they point to the real thing. Just think about the reality of a sunrise and a sunset. I mean, every single day the sun rises in the east, comes up out of the horizon like a, like a new birth, lives a glorious life as it brings light and life in its illumination, then declines to a slow death, dying into the other horizon, only to rise again the next morning. So death, burial, and the resurrection to new life. Or how about the seasons? They operate in a very similar way, don't they? Only over the course of months instead of days. Right now, the summer is moving quickly into the fall. Soon we'll have cold weather and things will start to die. You're like, no, don't even talk about it. You're going to jinx us. No, I'm not jinxing you, right? It's going to come. Summer will move to fall. We'll have cold weather, snow, and things will die. Petals fall off flowers, leaves fall off trees, and everything looks literally dead with cold nights and short days. But then we move back into spring. And spring always brings new life. April showers always bring May flowers. And summer is the epitome of life when the days are long and everything is green. Death, burial, and resurrection to new life. Or how about the caterpillar? You know the process. Caterpillar, happy being a lowly caterpillar, walking around eating leaves until it spins a cocoon. Death and burial. Only to break free and emerge resurrection to new life as a beautiful monarch who, by the way, can fly a 100 miles a day from the eastern United States Picture this butterfly flying all the way to Mexico, a total distance of some 3,000 miles. Some call it the most spectacular natural phenomena in the world. But what is it? It's a glorious picture of death, burial, resurrection in God's creation, new life. But it's designed so that we can see it. Last but not least, how about the farmer in the field? Sowing seed day in, day out into the earth and burying it so that it might bring forth a crop in the harvest season. Death, burial, resurrection. You know, Jesus interacts on that glorious truth. John chapter 12, when he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it brings forth much fruit. Do you see what I'm saying? There's signs everywhere pointing us to the reality and the need of death, burial, and resurrection. But in our passage this morning, we're going to be given, we're going to see the greatest sign of them all. Jesus said, Matthew chapter 12, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. But no sign will be given to you except the sign of Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the belly of the earth. Immediately after that, Jesus said, but something greater than Jonah is here. How cool is that? Because that means we'll be looking at the greatest sign of death, burial, and resurrection this morning. A sign that we know ultimately points forward to the Lord Jesus Christ and his death, burial, and resurrection. But it also points to us and our need for a spiritual death, burial, and resurrection. That we must die to self, only to rise and walk in newness of life. And by God's grace, the one 
necessarily results in the other. Meaning Christ's death, burial, and resurrection necessarily results in our death, burial, and resurrection. So with those thoughts in your mind, go ahead and open your Bibles with me to Jonah chapter 1. Jonah chapter 1. We'll be picking it up in verse 17. Jonah 1 is on page 774. Encourage you to grab my outline, as always. Title my sermon, God Graciously Delivers, God Provides a Great Fish, Jonah Prays to a Great God, God Provides a Great Salvation. As you're turning, before I talk about God providing a great fish, let me remind you of the context that we've been given in the first 16 verses of Jonah chapter 1. Remember, according to verse 1 and 2, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. Jonah didn't rise. Jonah didn't obey God. Instead, he rose to flee from God, traveling to Joppa, then on to Tarshish. So God said, Go east. Jonah jumped up, got on a ship, and he went west. Actually, to the most western part of the known world. Why did he do that? Because Nineveh was the great city of Assyria, a political powerhouse that had inflicted great pain on Israel, horrific things, and would rise again, according to the prophet Amos, Amos 6.14, to ultimately destroy Samaria, the capital city of Israel, in 722 B.C. Why does Jonah flee? Because he doesn't want God to be gracious to his enemies. But God chases him down, showing his unbelievable heart, not only for Jonah, but his heart for the nations. Verse 4, how does he do that? By hurling a great storm. When the prayers of the crew prove useless, they wake Jonah and tell him to pray. Then they cast lots to see whose guilt brought the storm. And of course, the lot falls on Jonah. Jonah says to the crew, pick me up, throw me in, and the storm will cease. The seas will calm. Essentially, from last week, my substitutionary death will satisfy God's wrath. Your lives will be saved. They'll be spared. So already a glorious picture of Christ's sacrificial, substitutional atonement for our sins. Because that's exactly what they did. Look at verse 15. They picked Jonah up, hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from raging. Then the men feared Yahweh exceedingly, and they offered up a great sacrifice to the Lord, and they made vows to him. By this point, all of that's already happened, right? So Jonah is literally sinking to the bottom of the sea. You need to know God does not immediately provide the great fish. He doesn't just go into the water and swim on the top of the sea and then comes along the fish. No, God lets him sink. God lets him experience death and dying before he brings resurrection. And salvation. All that in your mind as context. Follow along as I read our passage this morning, starting in verse 17. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God, from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress. And he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me, and all your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever." Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord, my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, And it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Now I recognize that as soon as some of you hear verse 17, 
that the Lord God appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah, and that Jonah was literally in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. And you hear chapter 2, verse 10, that the Lord spoke to the fish and had the fish spit Jonah out on the land. You're immediately skeptical. Right? Some of you might be questioning the validity of those verses, maybe even the history of this entire book of Jonah, maybe the historicity, the, the validation of the Bible itself. Or maybe you're just wondering about logistics. How is that even possible? How big was this fish? How did Jonah survive? Was it really three days? Was it really three nights? Now, right off the bat, let me just say that I'm probably going to disappoint you this morning because I'm not going to take a lot of time to investigate all the different possibilities, all the different theories, all the different versions of the story, but I will highlight two of them. So from my perspective, the most popular, not conservative, but most popular, and then I'll also give you as a result of my study, what I believe is the most funny. So the most popular, we'll start there, most popular approach, as you can imagine, is to view the entire book of Jonah as literary fiction. So it's just not real. Why is it not real? Well, it's not real, they would argue, because it's not possible. So it's just a story to prove a point. It's a fictional, made-up, tall tale in order to teach a moral Lesson, that's still, I believe, the most popular interpretation of Jonah. Now let me give you the most funny that I've read. The most funny that I've read is that Jonah recovered from the entire ordeal with the ship, chapter 1, by spending three days and three nights at a local inn called The Fish. That's hilarious. Right? But that would mean, right, look again at verse 17, right, that the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. They're saying that's just a literary device to say that Jonah spent three days and three nights at a local hotel. So from my perspective, it's more incredible to try and get that out of verse 17 than to simply acknowledge that God sent a massive fish to swallow Jonah alive. Here's the problems with those interpretation. Number one, the text says that God appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah. That's what the text says. That's clearly not a hotel. You just can't get that out of verse 17. Number two, Jonah is a real historical prophet who's listed in 2 Kings 14, who really did live, who really did die, who really did speak the word of God to King Jeroboam II. Even more than that, Jesus speaks about him as a real person. Jesus speaks about Nineveh as a real city. So there's no sense at all in any way that Jesus thinks about Jonah or the event as a literary fiction or as wishful thinking. So then what should we do with Jonah? and the great fish. Well, I think we should believe what the Bible teaches. That God appointed a great fish to swallow him up and spit him out. And that Jonah really was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. And yes, that's miraculous. But not more miraculous than the rest of the Bible. Not more miraculous than God creating the world in six days. Or as we'll see in the book of Exodus, the ten plagues. The parting of the Red Sea, manna from heaven, water out of a rock. It's not miraculous than that. Not more miraculous than what we're already seeing in Jonah. God appointing a great storm, chapter 1. Or what we will see, that he'll appoint a plant and a worm and an east wind, chapter 4. Not more miraculous than Christ's crucifixion, his death, his burial, his resurrection from the grave, to which we have facts for everything. So if you ask me, we've got bigger fish to fry than Jonah. I'm sorry. The pun was intended. But all of that actually 
reminds me of a J.I. Packer quote. It's a little bit of a longer quote. Listen to J.I. Packer from Knowing God. So helpful. Packer says, It's no wonder that thoughtful people find the gospel of Jesus Christ hard to believe. For the realities with which it deals certainly pass man's understanding. But it's also sad that so many make faith harder than it needs to be by finding difficulties in the wrong places. Then he starts listing some of the difficulties. Take the atonement, for instance. How can we believe that Jesus' death really does take away the sin of the world? Or the resurrection? How can we believe that Jesus rose physically from the dead? How about the virgin birth? How can we believe in such a biological anomaly? Or the miracles? How can we possibly believe that Jesus walked on water, that he fed the 5,000, or that he raised the dead? Listen to this. Packer says, but in fact, the real difficulty does not lie here at all. It lies not in Good Friday message of the atonement, nor in the Easter message of the resurrection, but in the Christmas message of the incarnation. The real staggering Christian claim is that Jesus was God-made man. Nothing in fiction is so fantastic as this truth, the truth of the incarnation. But once you grab a hold of the incarnation that God became man and dwelt among us, then all of these other difficulties, they dissolve away as no big deal. And I would say the exact same thing about Jonah and the fish. That as soon as you acknowledge the glory of creation, that God created all things ex nihilo. Do you know what ex nihilo means? Raise your hand if you know what ex nihilo means. Okay, the majority of the crowd, Mr. Bassett. (laughs) Ex nihilo is Latin for out of nothing. Go read Genesis 1, 1 to 3. God created the heavens and the earth. God spoke and out of nothing came something. God created all things, ex nihilo. God created all things out of nothing. Once you acknowledge the glory of creation, what's the big deal about God appointing a fish that he created to come and swallow a man, Jonah, in order to give us a sign to demonstrate the glory of the ultimate Son of Man and his death, burial, and resurrection? On the third day. After you grab a hold of creation, that seems to me to be no big deal. As we move forward, I do want you to see how verse 17, chapter 1, and chapter 2, verse 10, bookend the entire passage. Why is that important? Because it highlights that God is in total control of this entire event. So everything in between those two verses, chapter 1, verse 17, and chapter 2, verse 10, God is orchestrating, God is controlling. And he's doing so for his good purpose. He's giving it to us so that we might see a sign of something more glorious than this. In fact, if you would, go ahead and flip forward to Matthew chapter 12. I want you to see this for yourself. Matthew 12, keep your finger in Jonah. Page 817, Matthew 12. Matthew 12, look at verse 18. Verse 18, I'm sorry, verse 38. You're like, I'm looking at the wrong passage. Look at what he says. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees said to him, said to Jesus, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But he answered and said, An evil and adulterous generation craves a sign, and no sign will be given to you except the sign of Jonah the prophet. For just as Jonah was in the stomach of the sea monster, I'm just looking, if I quoted the right verse, 
Okay, yeah, I quoted the New American Standard in my notes. So let me just read out of my Bible here. Verse 40. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. Look at this. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Do you see there's no sense whatsoever in Jesus' statement that Jonah is anything less than a real person or that the fish did anything less than swallow him whole and spit him out, but instead that it's a God-ordained sign. It's a God-given sign pointing forward to Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the belly of the earth. So yes, Jesus died. And yes, Jesus was buried. And yes, Jesus rose from the grave, just like Jonah. And yes, absolutely, something greater than Jonah is here. So that you and I might know, that you and I might believe that Christ has conquered sin, death, and the devil, and that he rose victorious, that there really is resurrection life. God provided this great sign for us. Do you see that? God provided the context. God provided the fish. God provided the sign. It's all of God, and it's all meant to be helpful to us that we might better understand who the Lord Jesus is and what he accomplished in his death, burial, and resurrection. Helpful for us to know that even as we walk through the details. Go ahead and flip back to Jonah chapter 2. Jonah chapter 2. First thing I want you to notice is verse 1. Actually, let me just read the passage again. You know, without a doubt, death, burial, and resurrection is everything that's in here. That's what he wants us to see. Listen to the verses again in light of that reality. Verse 1, then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit. O Lord, my God, when my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. First thing, verse 1. Jonah is praying to God from the belly of the fish. Back in chapter 1, the ship captain tried to get Jonah to pray to save them from the storm. Back then he refused. Now, Jonah's praying. Amazing how a near-death experience will do that to you. And he's praying, obviously, from inside the belly of the fish. Good question to ask is how should we think about this great fish? Meaning, did God send the fish to judge Jonah or did God send the fish to rescue Jonah? Well, clearly, to rescue him. We know that from the prayer itself. In fact, Jonah declares at the end, salvation belongs to the Lord. Notice how verses 1 to 9 are in a different format in your Bible altogether. That's because we went from narrative, a story, to poetry. So Jonah's prayer is more like a psalm than it is like a story. And it feels that way, doesn't it? As Jonah's crying out to the Lord. But even though he's praying from the belly of the fish, much of what he's saying comes from the process of descending into the water. It's coming, he's declaring, as he's going down, if you will, into his burial. And he reaches the bottom of the sea, so his death. And then the great fish comes, swallowing him up and bringing him up to the surface to spit him out on the dry land. Resurrection, salvation. Look at it. We'll walk through the details. A, the declaration of his burial, starting in verse 3. 
For you, O God, cast me into the deep, into the heart of the sea, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Can't you feel yourself being buried alive with that language? It's almost as if the dirt is being thrown on top of the casket. You see it again. Maybe a little clearer. Look at verse 5. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. All of that is poetic language to help you feel Jonah hitting the bottom and being buried in the depth of the sea. Can you think of anything more horrific than that? I mean, he's drowning. Do do you know anything about drowning? Absolutely horrific way to die. Why is it such a horrific way to die? Because you're fighting the whole time for life. You're fighting to live. All the energy that you have. And you're, you're flailing Anything that you can do just to hang on to life, just to keep your head above the water, only to fail and you go down and you try to come back up and then you go down and you're trying to swim and then you can no longer get to the surface. The more you try, the faster you sink. Think about that. Light of the surface growing more and more dim until darkness Blackness completely surrounds you. Then we hear B, Jonah's declaration of death. Verse 4, he says, I am driven away from your sight. Away from the presence of the Lord completely as in death. Then verse 6, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Helpful for you to know the word bars here has two different meanings. Two different meanings in the English, two different meanings, same way in the Hebrew. Both languages, bars can can either be bars as in prison cell bars or it can be bars as in a sand bar. Both clearly relevant. Seems to me like both meanings are even present. Jonah's declaration of death because he's about to be imprisoned forever in a grave of sand. Then we hear those glorious words of resurrection, the second half of verse 6. Jonah prays, Yet you, God, have brought up my life from the pit, O Lord, O Yahweh, my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you in your holy temple. That's the same language he used back in in verse 4. And God in his holy temple has everything to do with God's presence. So Jonah's prayers come into God's presence. And God not only hears his prayers, but he responds to his prayers. And these two words, verse 6, are where that transition takes place. Yet you, you is God. Yet God, or you could translate it, but God. But God brought my life up from the pit. Doesn't that immediately make you think of Ephesians 2? I was dead in my trespasses and sins, in which I once walked, following the course of this world being disobedient, living in the passions of my flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. Verse 4, but God. Think of the language of Ephesians. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead, made us alive together with Christ, unity in Christ, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places. Do you see how this is a but God moment for Jonah? It's his resurrection from the dead. It's his new birth. And all of that language from the New Testament is already here. It's actually here right in Jonah chapter 2. For example, back in verse 2, when he calls out to God from distress, 
That word distress is most often used with the distress that comes from childbirth. And he's crying out not from the belly of the fish, but literally he's crying out from the womb of the fish. And all of the language, right, taking him down. Verse 3, cast down into the deep. 3B, taken down into the heart of the sea. Verse 6A, went down to the land whose bars closed up upon him forever. But now it's a transition. 6B, but God, but God, it changes. 6B, God brings him up from the pit of death and destruction. Brings him up to what? To life. The language is right here in Jonah chapter 2, new birth and resurrection language. Then we hear Jonah, right? D, declaration of salvation. Verse 8, that those who pay regard to vain idols forsake the hope of steadfast love. But I, that's Jonah's declaration with the voice of thanksgiving. What's he implying? He's implying that he will not forsake the hope of his steadfast love. But I, Jonah says, I will sacrifice to God. I will give to God what I have vowed I will pay the glory because salvation belongs to the Lord our God. Salvation is all of God. Jonah's death, his burial, his resurrection, and his salvation all designed by God, provided by God, used by God, first in the life of Jonah, then to point us to Jesus, and then ultimately to point us to ourselves. But it's first used, Jonah's life, his salvation, his sanctification. Then it points to the Lord Jesus. Quick question. Why do you think I walk through these verses slowly and in such detail? Because you need to see how clear the sign really is. Is that not crystal clear? Death burial, resurrection, salvation, language. You need to hear that, right? Remember, Matthew 12, no other sign will be given to you except the sign of Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, so will the Son of Man. Three days, three nights in the belly of the earth. See how clear that is? Three days, three nights, death, burial, resurrection, and the clear declaration of salvation. It really couldn't get any clearer than that which I think is essential because it ultimately applies to us and our desperate need that we have for a spiritual death, burial, and resurrection for ourselves. But first, let's look at Jonah just in context. A, Jonah's salvation and sanctification. Verse 9, Jonah declares salvation belongs to the Lord. Then immediately, verse 10, salvation comes to Jonah. And the Lord spoke to the fish And the fish vomited Jonah out on the dry land. Again, absolutely obvious, it's all of God. Verse 1, chapter 1, verse 17 said, The Lord appointed the great fish. Now we have verse 10, the Lord spoke to the great fish. It's all of God. And it's all about Jonah's salvation and Jonah's sanctification. Now, now you might be thinking, I get the salvation part. Right? You, you were crystal clear on that, right? Death, burial, language, it's right here. That's obvious to me. I get what you're saying there. But where exactly is the sanctification? Well, you see it in chapter 3. Look at verse 1. Verse 1 tells us that the word of the Lord comes to Jonah a second time. Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it. That's the exact same thing that we just saw in chapter 1. Same call. You want me to review chapter 1? Right? How did he? Right? Go, go, go east. Where did he go? He went west. Right? He, he didn't go to Nineveh. He ran the opposite way. Well, what happens here in Jonah chapter 3? Verse 3 says, Jonah arose and went to Nineveh. You see how that's real change? Real transformation? Do you see how that's sanctification? That's what sanctification is. It's change. But that sanctification comes as a result of salvation. Salvation, then sanctification, right? He's saved, and he's raised, and he moves in a different direction, literally. He doesn't go west. He goes east. He goes to Nineveh. Now, are we done 
with Jonah's bad attitude and his issues with Nineveh. Nope. Nope, we're not done with that completely. Wouldn't that be great? We just pause for a moment. Wouldn't it be great if you were saved and then you became perfect? Mm, that would be glorious. That's not how it works, unfortunately, right? We're going to see Jonah's bad attitude. It's going to come up again in, ver- in chapter 4. But sanctification is a process. So we're just seeing the start of it here. Let me just say this, though. If, if Jonah's a true believer... He will keep repenting. He will keep changing. It won't be perfect, but there will be progress. He will keep growing. He will keep putting sin to death and walking in righteousness. Let me reiterate again. Not perfectly, but progressively. Another quick question. Why do we know for certain that all of this points forward to Jesus? Well, for starters, Jesus told us, right? We already saw that in Matthew chapter 12. So we're not going to turn there. But I do want to remind you, especially as we're making our way through Jonah and then going to go into Exodus, of what Jesus said to his disciples on the road to Emmaus. Luke 24. So if you would go ahead and open or turn, not open, hopefully it's open, but turn to Luke 24. Road to Emmaus, well-known story for many of you. Page 885. If you remember, the story takes place after Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. So he's walking with two guys who are leaving Jerusalem on the third day since his death. And they're telling him, love that part, right? They don't know that it's Jesus that's walking with them. So they're talking to Jesus. Jesus is saying, tell me about the things that happened. And they're telling him about all the things that Jesus did before he died. I find that hilarious that Jesus is like, I know what I did, right? But from their perspective, Jesus is dead. There's no hope, so they're not staying in Jerusalem. Instead, they're heading home. But look at what Jesus says to them. Verse 25. Jesus said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that, notice, the prophets have spoken. Prophets like Jonah. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things, meaning death, burial, and resurrection, and then enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Now, is that a one-hit wonder? Meaning, is that the only time that he said that? Nope. Flip forward to verse 44. Speaking to the disciples. Verse 44, then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, that's going to be the book of Exodus, and the prophets, that's Jonah, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise again from the dead. Where do we get that in the Bible? Jonah chapter 2. And that repentance and forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations, beginning from Jerusalem. Just think about that. That means when Jesus was walking with those two guys on the road to Emmaus, he flipped to Jonah. Oh, foolish man. Slow of heart to believe what the Bible so clearly declares. It's right here. Death, burial, resurrection language. Yes, it's first about Jonah. But then it ultimately is about the Lord Jesus Christ and his willingness to suffer and die. Death, burial, and resurrection. To be a substitutionary sacrifice so that we might be delivered from God's wrath. Remember the context of Jonah. God's wrath is raging until Jonah is thrown into the sea. So, so a pointer, right? Christ's death, burial, resurrection has everything to do with saving us from our sin. Not just physical danger, not just some ship, not just a few sailors and a captain, but salvation for all eternity, for everyone who will but repent and believe in Jesus. Do you see why Jesus said something greater than Jonah is here? Jesus is so much greater than Jonah because there is no greater salvation 
Not in Jonah, but in the Lord Jesus, right? That's why Peter says in Acts 4.12 that there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name given among men by which we must be saved. Which has everything to do with us. In fact, I would suggest it has everything to do with every single one of us. Because this idea of death, burial, and resurrection is all over the place in the New Testament. And it's not just talking about the Lord Jesus Christ. It's talking about us. Think with me about Luke chapter 9, verse 22. Jesus declares, this is before he dies. He declares to his disciples, he says, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes. He says so clearly, and be killed and on the third day, rise again. Declaration of his death, burial, and resurrection. But what does he say immediately after that? Verse 23, that if anyone comes after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. Follow me in a spiritual death, burial, resurrection. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life, whoever dies to self for my sake, will save it for all eternity. Do you see the connection? First Jesus, then us. Jesus willingly laid down his life, willingly died so that we might have life, salvation for all eternity. But in order to experience that glorious salvation, we too have to die. We have to lose our lives. We need to be born again. That's what Jesus said to Nicodemus, John chapter 3. That unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. For that which is born of the flesh is flesh but that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel. Do not be surprised that I said to you, you must be born again. You must die spiritually and be born again spiritually. That's where you find new life. So to experience eternal life, to enter the kingdom of God, we must spiritually die to self. True life, eternal life, spiritual life comes only through Spiritual death, burial, and the new resurrection. Right? Romans chapter 6 says so clearly, buried with Christ in baptism, raised to walk in newness of life. You know, just to to put an explanation point on this, exclamation point on this, like Diedrich Bonhoeffer. Diedrich Bonhoeffer. You know Diedrich Bonhoeffer? Well-known Christian pastor, teacher, also a well-known martyr. He was killed by the Nazis at the end of World War II. Diedrich Bonhoeffer said it this way so succinctly. When Christ bids a man, bids a woman to come, he bids him to come and die. You have to die to self. And that's what I want to say to any of you who stand outside of faith in Christ this morning. Come. Come and die. Come and lose your life. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world if it means forfeiting his soul? Count the cost. Choose Christ that you might gain your soul for all eternity. Let, in fact, let me just put it in the form of a few questions. Right? Is, is, the, is the fleeting joy of the here and now worth the cost of eternal judgment? Is momentary comfort and ease, rest and relaxation worth eternal pain and judgment rather than life? Count the cost. Choose Christ. Besides that, I would just say to you, Are you even doing a good job running your own life? I mean, how are things really going for you, dear unbeliever? Are you happy? Are you feeling good about your life, your situation, your relationships? Or are there issues all over the place where there's really no joy to be found? 
He offers you life. He offers you change. He offers you transformation. You living in a way that brings glory and honor to God with great joy. Here's a great illustration. It would be like a caterpillar who is being offered the opportunity. Hey, little caterpillar, here's an opportunity. You can become a beautiful, orange and black, delicate and glorious monarch butterfly. So rather than being a creepy, crawly, slow and pathetic caterpillar, I'm offering you, dear caterpillar, to be, to be transformed into a butterfly who in its new life can fly all the way from New England to Mexico. You could travel the world, little caterpillar. And that caterpillar hear that offer, and he say, you know what? No! I want to be a creepy, crawly caterpillar. That would be ridiculous. If you really knew that was a real offer. But that's a real offer from the Lord Jesus. You can have new life. You can have that life to the fullest. You can have the forgiveness of sins. You can have resurrection power. You can put sin to death. You can walk in newness of life. But it does require a death. You have to die to self. That you can walk in newness of life. But that offer is available to you this morning. How about you, dear believer? Do you recognize this morning that the entire Christian life is really just the ongoing process of dying to self? A daily dying that you might walk in newness of life. Think about Galatians 2.20. Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. I've died to self. I'm dead. And it's no longer I who live but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Or my favorite, Romans 6, where Paul says, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead... Make the connection. We die with him. We rise with him. We too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in his death, we shall certainly be united with him in his resurrection. The old self crucified. The old self dead. And we put on the new self. And we walk in the new identity. Our identity is not in the old man. It is in the Lord Jesus And we're called and commanded to consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to God. And because that's our new identity, we're not only delivered from the penalty of sin, we're delivered from the power of sin, which means we have resurrection power through His Spirit to actually say no to sin and to say yes to righteousness. Romans 6, after our identity is in Jesus, He says, verse 12, Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but instead present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments of righteousness. Let me ask you, dear believer, do you know That you have real power over sin. You have resurrection power. Do you know that this morning? You've been transformed. You've been changed. You've experienced, if you will, metamorphosis. Right? You're a new creature. You don't have to be proud. You can be humble. You don't have to be lustful. 
you can be pure. You really don't have to be angry. You can choose by the power of the Spirit to be patient, to be kind, to be merciful, to be self-controlled. You don't have to be consumed with self. You can be consumed with others. You don't have to be selfish. You can be selfless. You don't have to fear man. You can fear God. And you can walk in His ways. You don't have to worry about what people think of you. You are free to live for an audience of one. You're free to share the gospel. You're free to love people. You're free to lay down your life. You're free to serve. You're free to sacrifice. You're free to be steadfast. You're free to be immovable. You're free to be always abounding in the work of the Lord. You're free. If the sun sets you free, death, burial, resurrection, you can walk in newness of life. But that does require a daily death, doesn't it? Jesus has called us to take up our cross daily and follow him. And that looks like something. Daily, daily called, empowered to die to self and to live for Christ. May God give us the grace to daily put sin to death and to daily walk in righteousness that his name would be glorified. Allow me to pray to that end. Father, we're grateful for your word. Oh, I pray that we would heed the sign. That we would see it. That we would glory in it. The reality that, that we've been given this glorious sign. Just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the belly of the earth. Which... He was. And then He rose on the third day. And now He calls people to Himself that we can experience the forgiveness of sins. We can experience the glory of a new birth resurrected to walk in newness of life. Father, I pray for my friends here this morning any who have not yet grabbed the hold of the Lord Jesus by faith, I pray that they would see the sign and respond not to Jonah, but to Jesus, repenting and believing. And I pray for my brothers and sisters in Christ that we would know we have power over sin, that we might put sin to death, that we might walk in newness of life, that our lives would bring glory and honor and praise to our great Savior. Pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.